Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What does he mean? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has sent me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done in you in Egypt. Now come, that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the land flowing with milk and honey. Remember, listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the Canaanites and say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go up three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. For I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless you help us and the Egyptians to arrive at Shechem and to make Shechem all the wonders that I will do there. Now he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in the house, her and the little girl, and her children. You shall put them in the stands along the guard, Sovereignty of God. 
A.W. King would say it, God always does as He pleases, when He pleases, where He pleases, with whom He pleases. Psalm, say it in Psalm 103, 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. So Psalm prays in Psalm 93 through Psalm 99, you see it again, repeated again and again, God reigns, the Lord reigns, The Lord reigns forever. The Lord reigns forever. He has the absolute right and He has total ability to do whatever He pleases. He does not wait for any man. He does not learn from any man. His hand is not forced. He is not influenced except led by His own good, perfect Sovereign, eternal pleasure. That is the sovereignty of God. Arthur Sproul says, there is no maverick molecule in the entire universe. There is not one molecule doing its own thing, living its own life apart from the sovereign control of God. Of the sea and the sea 
fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Hold Christ, he can hold the world together, the atoms hold together by his power. He would cease in that ministry, the atoms would explode apart. Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God. God is sovereign. He's sovereign as our Creator. He is sovereign in creation. The second realm in which we see the sovereignty of God is in history and providence. Sovereign in creation, sovereign in history, in providence. Again, thinking of that introduction by Shakespeare, by Calvin, all the world is a theater to display the glory of God. Is that not the foundation of after the Noahic flood, the Noahic covenant, the rainbow is, is set there. God says, I will not destroy again this earth. This will be the stage in which I carry out my redemption. Psalm 33, if you continue in verses 10 through 15, says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The Lord looks down from the heavens. He sees the children of man. From where he sits and thrones, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and stirs all their dreams. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. I have this really annoying game I always play If I'm around in any sort of crowd for very long, I immediately start to wonder, who's that person with them? Who's that person behind me? That's like my spiritual gift is to find people's problems. And so, you know, I'm just always getting to that, and sometimes it's random. It'll be like, gosh, I'm a little baby over there. Yeah, whatever it might be. So it's my gift. I'm always doing that. You don't look at the Lord and say, There is no other. Job 12, 23 talks about nations rise and nations fall by the hand of God. He builds some up and he abandons some. History is not just random, but the Lord is sovereign over the nations. Acts 17 would tell us that as, as Paul would interact with other philosophers and theologians there in Athens. He would say, well, it might be an unknown God to you, but this is my God. Talks about how he creates nations. In fact, he sets the boundaries and the times, the people for nations. He's sovereign over history and providence. The third area that I want uh, in this scripture speaks about he is sovereign in salvation. Ephesians 1 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. 
order, in life would be destined us for adoption to himself as sons in Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. All of the Trinity works together in the sovereign purposes for our salvation. God sets it forth in eternity past. As he gives to his son, the son promises, I will leave none who you have given me. And Jesus Christ accomplishes all that is necessary for the salvation of the chosen. The Holy Spirit takes that and he applies and he seals and cures the believer. And so we see that God is sovereign in salvation that eternally has unconditionally chose, the scripture calls it the elect. And that elect he gave to the Son. And the Son accomplished on the cross. Not just made possible, but accomplished on the cross all that is necessary to secure the salvation of the elect. Purchasing our faith. Here it then irresistibly draws. We might fight it for our whole life, but he will not fail in using the means of grace to draw us to himself.
understanding anthropomorphic language. In his words, all it means is giving qualities to an incomprehensible God, describing him in human attributes and qualities just to help us understand and lay hold of him a little easier in our minds. And so it's not as if God turned his ears and heard the crying and groaning. God's not limited by a physical ear. It's not like God learned something in that moment. It's teaching us that, that God, as a, in his transcendent sovereignty, is also a personal God. He's made promises. He will be faithful to his promises to these people who know what is taking place with them. of the hearts of man. Maybe 
I don't want to cause you to too long, but just catch up here to God hardens his heart. What, what exactly is taking place there? Scripture is a feature of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. It says so three different ways. It just states the times of Pharaoh's hardened heart. There's a couple areas where it, a couple times it states that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But the majority of the time, it also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was active in that. The first reference of it is there in 4, 21 and 23. The, the last reference in chapter 14 we'll look at at the end. But again, states this. Maybe flip to chapter 9, right at the end of chapter 9, verse 34, in the beginning of chapter 10, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. You see there Pharaoh hardening his own heart to his servant. Verse 35, So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. The statement, He has a hard heart, has become hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Verse 10, then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. See God's activity there. He's hardening his heart. Chapter 9, verse 16, speaks to the absolute sovereignty of God and Pharaoh again. He says, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God put Pharaoh in that position. He raised him up. He put him there for that very moment. Now, when we think of God hardening hearts, we need to think it's not him rescuing someone, him hardening their heart does not take place connectively, or one is just like the other. It's not like there's a bunch of people who are just Shall growl at 
any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that ye may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. You see that underlying there, God is sovereign over all people. He's gracious to all people. He's sovereign over history and providence, but He is sovereign in saving His people. Drawing a distinction to His sovereign to the good of His people in the Passover, chapter 12. Now, of course, now you go and view it. You find the flag that God chose for the firstborn son for anyone who doesn't take the blood of that Passover lamb, sacrifice the lamb, take the blood and cover the doorpost of the house. And if that doorpost has the blood of the Passover lamb on it, and God will pass over it, that house, and then kill the firstborn son. The sons of his people are spared because of that. God makes distinction. He works for the good of his people. And finally, Father says, Oh God, sovereignty of God, working for the good of his people, for the glory and enjoyment of his name. Ultimate end of God's sovereign reign in his country is his own glory. The story of Exodus is not about Moses, it's about God. The story of Exodus is just to highlight Moses as a great leader and to talk about his people. It is for the glory and the fame and name of God. Chapter 6, verse 7 tells them in doing these things, we've got Moses the triumphant and the magician. He says, Do these things in order that you will know, or that Moses will know, Israel will know that I am, and I am your God. Chapter 7, 3 reads, Plague will come in order that the Egyptians will know that He is God, that I am God alone. Nine fourteen, that there is no one like Him. Or in red, chapter, verses chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Again, for the fame of His name. You see it again and again. I'm doing this for my glory. I'm doing this that you will know that I am God. God works sovereignly. He works sovereignly for the good of His people. He works sovereignly for the good of His people for His own glory. This all comes and climaxes for us in that, that final portion of, of, of their deliverance out of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea. Chapter 14, the end of chapter 14, you remember God has delivered His people finally after the Passover to heart Pharaoh. He says, get out of here. Go, take the people. So Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And then God gives them instructions, and the directions are, go out against the people, hear the fear that Moses makes the earth and the earth and the earth and the earth like me, I live in the south. If I say, okay, just get to my house, you go here, just head downtown, go out the tunnel, and then uh, eventually you'll get to where uh, you can go through the airport, then cut across over, take off work your way back to Cranberry, and if you get off on 19, you can leave all the way to Indian Road, and then get over to the river here in Clarksville and just stop there and wait for me. That makes me okay. Could just go down Mulch and do this process. That's the instructions God gives. And so if you look on the map, Moses takes the people, he winds them in a few circles, 
and then he encamped in the worst strategic area possible, right up against the Red Sea with the enemy behind him. And God says exactly what he's going to do. He says, do this because I'm going to take Pharaoh, and I'm going to make Pharaoh think you're lost, and I'm going to harden his heart, and he's going to come after you. Why would chapter 14 They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Why? So that I can get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. It's easy to miss these details when we think of the Exodus, but it's a story of God. This is the theater of him sovereignly displaying his power for his own glory. He orchestrates it in such a way that they'll get to the Red Sea and have no... They're in the worst possible situation. And now Pharaoh's coming after them, and that's exactly what happens. And you know, the the large part can God's sovereignty over creation. People pass through, and a multitude of people pass through on dry land. Here comes Pharaoh and his army. In the midst of the sea, the water's crashed on them. They destroy verse 17 and 18, right before it happens. Chapter 14, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. It all takes place. And look at the end in verse 30. It says, Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. And his servant Moses, and in chapter 15, is a worship song of the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely sovereign. He has the right and the ability to do as He pleases. He is not coerced. He is not influenced by anything. He is not learning new information, but He is ruling and reigning sovereignly. That should give us a measure of awe and fear. It should give us a measure of great comfort and security. It should give us a measure of hope. We can read it in this story. It's like, okay, that was good back then, but it becomes somewhat just a story that in our own lives, do we really lay hold of it it might seem like, well, yeah, but he told them exactly what he was going to do before he did it. Guess what? He has told us what he is going to do. He's told us that this pilgrim's journey is going to be wrought with hardship and trial. He told us to expect suffering and trial, and he's going to take that trial, and he's told us how he's going to use it. He's going to use it as is necessary for however long it's necessary to refine us, to produce in us persevering faith produce endurance, purity, patience. He's working those things in us. We're in an age that has fallen. We will experience the hardships of that fall. He's told us that that's going to happen. He's given us Jesus Christ who lives in His life, obviously redemptive, but also is an example for us. He walked this road. He suffered in every way as we're going to. And yet, when we come up against trials and suffering, it's not like it's those promises or His telling us those things make it easy, makes it less grievous. 
but it should give us a hope and a sure foundation of, I was told this was going to happen for my good and for His glory, because the suffering is but for a moment, nor that my faith endures until it terminates in the glory of my God, the glory of my God. He lays it out in the and He tells us, this is, in this age, what life will be like. It will be full of joy. I will bless you. I'll give you everything that's necessary. It is going to be, but it will have its trials. It will have its hardships. It will have its confusion. But the victory is secure for your good and for his glory. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your promise. Help us not to shy away from it. I feel like we need to explain it away. Thank you.